You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Imagine you're in Greece in the 5th century BC and you have important information to share. Phidipides, I have some important information to share. Yes, General, what is it? Tell the city of Athens we have been victorious. We have defeated the Persians. They must know as soon as possible. Yes, sir, right away. Uh, how do I get this info to Athens? Phidippides didn't have the option of calling anyone on his cell phone or email. Wow, this is a long way, and this mountain is steep. Phidippides had to deliver the general's message on foot. Excuse me, is this town Athens? Does this look like Athens? It's four towns over. Phidippides ran about 26 miles, or 40 kilometers, to Athens from... Marathon. It said he did so without stopping, and he burst into a meeting of the Athenian government and exclaimed, We have won! Before collapsing and dying. But that ending's a bit of a downer. So, since there's a debate about its historical accuracy, we'll go with our ending. (sighs) We have won! Anyone have a bottle of Gatorade? And a towel? Today, thousands follow the spirit of Pheidippides when they gather in Boston, New York, and other cities to run a marathon. All right, let's figure that Pheidippides might have covered that distance in about three hours. So that means that his message was transmitted at an average rate of about 0.001 bits per second. Wait, how did you get that number? Well, it's simple. I mean, I just took the amount of bits in the message, which was very short, and divided it by the amount of time that it took to go from Marathon to Athens. How does that compare with my home Wi-Fi? Well, your home Wi-Fi will typically operate at about 50 million bits per second, which is moving data about 5 billion times faster than Fidipides could. But without the blisters. Yeah, but the point is that without a horse or a boat, that was the fastest you could send information in 500 B.C. Scroll ahead to the 20th century... KPPS, where the hits just keep on coming. And the practical use of radio waves. We're able to use light and radio not just to send information, but also to study the cosmos. This is Big Picture Science coming to you courtesy of the long end of the electromagnetic spectrum. If you're listening by radio, and even if you're listening by podcast, the Internet is likely coming to you via radio and optical links. Or perhaps it's coming to you via a sweaty Greek. But but we doubt it. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. This is an episode that really does run the spectrum. From the construction of the largest radio telescope array in the world to the gamma rays spewed out by black holes. Join me and close your eyes for a moment. You can't see much, but you can still see something, right? A tiny bit of light filters in to brighten the inside of your eyelids. Now open your eyes. The stuff that you can see right now, the chair, the cat, the guy gesturing to you on the highway if you're driving, in that case you probably shouldn't have been shutting your eyes, all of this you can see thanks to the rapid change of electric and magnetic fields. That is what light is. Well, the Earth has this very, very deep, deep, blue. The best way to imagine what it would be like like during a spacewalk is to go out on an absolutely clear day, preferably in the tropics, but on a beautifully clear day. Think of the clouds that you might see if there are one or two clouds there and imagine the whole sky curving up above you and then pull yourself away from that blue and the sky curving up above you and that's how the earth looks. It's an extraordinarily beautiful view but that light illuminates everything 
that's around you, the spacecraft in particular, with this deep, deep but gentle blue hue. What happened here is that light bounced off the ocean and made its way back to astronaut Michael Fole's eyes where it was of the right wavelength or the right frequency, if you prefer, to have some effect on his retina. Frequency and wavelength are what determine where in the electromagnetic spectrum we're talking about. And the spectrum itself includes all kinds of radiation. By the way, radiation is just energy that comes from some source and moves through a material or just through space. Okay, ready, Gary? Yep. I want you to demonstrate with your voice. I'm going to throw this at you. We're going to move to one end of the spectrum. Okay. Where the waves get longer and oscillate more slowly until eventually you get to radio waves. Okay, so you want me to show that with my voice somehow? Yeah, try something. (laughs) All right. Uh, How about this? This is what radio waves would sound like. Okay, that's good. Now, move the other way, and the waves become more energetic. They vibrate more quickly up through ultraviolet X-rays to gamma radiation, and you're on, Gary. Oh, okay. Uh, Let's see. uh, Gamma radiation? That sounds dangerous. (laughs) Higher frequency. Well, wear your lead BVDs, Gary. Now, here's something. Visible light is only a narrow band in the entire electromagnetic spectrum. How narrow? Well, consider this analogy. Imagine taking the electromagnetic spectrum, extend it from New York to California. Okay, so that's about 3,000 miles. And the part of that that you can see, the visible part, is only a few inches wide. It's, you know, the width of a book in the distance between California and New York. That's all you can see is a very, very narrow band? That's it. Yeah. With this analogy, you see a few inches in a spectrum that's as wide as the continent. Of course, all these other forms of radiation, these other wavelengths, they're out there. And we can visit these invisible waves on either side of what your eye can see, and entire worlds open up to us. Okay, let's start with longer light waves. Now, the first stop down from visible would be infrared. There are near-infrared and there are far-infrared waves. You experience far-infrared in the form of heat, you know, from the sun or a fire. The shorter near-infrared waves are not hot. You can't feel them, but you can use them every time you click the remote. Smith over the middle to Glock. Jack, Chrissy walked in her sleep last night. Mr. Spock on trial for mutiny. Folks, I have always... That's infrared. If we go to even longer wavelengths, we get to radio. And as an example of what they're good for, we and Seth go to Northern California. I'm standing here on a bit of pasture land up in the Cascade Mountains of California. It's about 300 miles north of San Francisco, but uh, you would never know because all I can see here are mountains, many covered with snow to my north. Mount Shasta's very symmetric cone is rising above the curvature of the earth, and to the south is Mount Lassen. This is the beginning of the Ring of Fire. But the reason I'm here is not for the scenery. Surrounding me are 42 metal mushrooms here. Antennas, antennas, radio antennas. This is the Allen Telescope Array, and uh, it's a radio telescope. It's called a radio telescope. If you saw it, you would think, well, it's just a field of funny-looking antennas, and that's really what they are. Each one's about 20 feet in diameter. They're all pointing in the same direction because these antennas work together as a team. And what they're trying to do is find some radio signals that might be coming from hundreds, maybe thousands of light years away. You know, the best of our radio telescopes can pick up signals coming from the other side of the cosmos, from 13 billion light years away. They can do that. They have done that. But that's not what this antenna array is about. This array is looking for the kind of signal that would tell us that somebody somewhere out there has a transmitter, which means that somebody out there is smart enough to have figured out the laws of physics, developed a bit of electronics, and engaged in a project to try and communicate with other beings, namely us in this case, that would be fantastic. The Allen Telescope Array is used many days every week looking in directions in the sky where we think there are star systems with planets that might house life in the hope of picking up such a signal. We haven't done it so far, but on the other hand, we've barely scratched the surface of the cosmos. We haven't looked in very many directions at very many different radio frequencies. Why radio waves? Well, radio waves have the advantage that they go right through the dust and the gas that uh, exists between the stars of the Milky Way. So uh, the universe is pretty much transparent 
to these radio waves. And consequently, they might make for a very, very good method of sending information from one star system to another. We know that. Presumably, the aliens know that too. So they may be using radio to get in touch. The radio waves that the telescopes are trying to detect are... Low frequency, long wavelength, low energy, least penetrating. (laughs) Somebody give that guy a cup of coffee. So what other advantages do they have? Well, there is a certain kind of radio wave that is useful to heat up leftovers. Ah, McChicken McBurrito McSurprise. Gary's lunch is heating up because microwaves, a form of radio waves, are the right wavelength to vibrate water molecules. Which heat up that bird he's about to gobble. (laughs) Other radio waves might be used for communication between star systems, as we heard from Seth in Hat Creek, or of our everyday variety. Name a sandwich after me that would Wait, maybe be turkey. Wait, television is a form of radio? Well, yeah, really it is. It's just a radio wave that's carrying information about an image. That's all. But there's another use for radio, of course, studying the cosmos because there are things out there that naturally make radio waves. Say you're an astronomer and you want to study the farthest things out there. Well, the expanding universe presents you with a problem because it also stretches out the waves of light that are coming to you from deep in space. Radio waves get stretched out to very low frequency waves that most radio telescopes can't pick up. But a new telescope, bigger than all the rest and now on the drawing boards, we'll be able to see the faint radio emissions from the farthest reaches of the cosmos. Um, My name is Anil Anantaswamy. I'm a consultant for the New Scientist magazine in London. Parts of the Square Kilometer Array will be located in nearly a dozen countries with core sites in South Africa and Australia. The Square Kilometer refers to the total area of the dishes, the collecting area. 3,000 dishes that will total up to one square kilometer. 3,000 dishes in one square kilometer, is that dish elbow to dish elbow? I mean, are they all touching? Um, No, the square kilometer actually doesn't refer to the size of the land. It refers to the size of the area of the dishes themselves. If you add up all the collecting area of each dish, that adds up to one square kilometer. The core of the telescope, which will be made of about 2,000 dishes, will be spread over five square kilometers. And then there will be these spiral arms, which will be made of dishes that stretch over 3,000 kilometers. Why do we need such a gigantic array? Well, with telescopes, it's always good to build bigger telescopes because you get more sensitivity. You're able to collect more photons from the universe and look deeper into the cosmos, further back in time, and all that good stuff. And uh, this particular telescope, the Square Kilometer Array, is a special kind of telescope. It's called a radio telescope. So it's not looking at visible light like optical telescopes do, but it's going to look at radio frequencies. So this is at one end of the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, So the wavelengths that we are talking about range from a few centimeters to a few meters. So these are very long waves. And that's the kind of signal that they're looking for from the universe. So these are radio waves, and they're very long waves, or at that end yeah. of the electromagnetic spectrum, yeah. and they're traveling quite a distance, because if you're looking at radio waves from the universe, they could be traveling from the very earliest days of the universe, or the very earliest millennia of the universe? Completely. I mean, in fact, one of the reasons why the square kilometer array is being built is to probe something called the dark ages in the history of our universe. And these dark ages... Uh, start at around 370,000 years after the Big Bang and then continue on for about uh, a few hundred million years after that. And uh, these dark ages cannot really be seen by optical telescopes because there were no stars. You know, there was no visible light coming out from that era. But during that time, the universe was filled with neutral hydrogen, which is really the most abundant element in, in the universe. And as it happens, every atom of neutral hydrogen will occasionally emit a radio wave at a 21 centimeter wavelength. It's literally the heartbeat of hydrogen that we're looking for. And uh, you can essentially map all of the hydrogen in the universe. And because galaxies eventually form from hydrogen, by looking for this hydrogen gas, where it clumps, how it forms, we can get a sense of how structure has formed in the universe, how galaxies formed, how clusters formed, how superclusters formed. So you're looking at this particular form of hydrogen, and it, I can tell you something about the very early universe, and it emits radio waves? 
Yes, it's a really weird thing. Um, neutral hydrogen can exist in two energy states, and occasionally the hydrogen atom will flip from one energy state to another. And when it goes from the highest, higher energy state to the lower energy state, it'll actually emit a pulse of electromagnetic radiation, which just happens to be at 21 centimeters wavelength, which is a radio wave. Now, you've been to two of the sites where this array might be built. One is in Australia and one is in South Africa. Can you just describe what these sites look like, what your visit was like? I mean, the array hasn't been built yet. Um, Yes, I've been to both South Africa and to Australia. And one of the things that uh, immediately strikes you when you go to these sites, as you said, there is no telescope there yet. One of the things that strikes you is the complete emptiness. And, and that's partly the reason why these places have been chosen. These are vast areas of land that have almost no people in them. For instance, in the South African site, uh, it is a land that is so dry and so arid that farmers need hectares of land just to graze one sheep. It's, a, it's just empty landscape. The South African site eventually, as you go north along that site, you end up in the Kalahari Desert. And the Australian site is in the outback in Western Australia. And again, very, very few people. And the reason why these sites have been chosen is because they are extremely quiet in terms of radio interference. So one of the problems for radio telescopes, if you want to build them in any kind of urban setting, is that the noise that humanity makes in terms of radio transmissions, whether it's uh, cell phone transmissions or FM radio or television signals, these are all radio waves they will completely swamp any kind of signal you might get from the cosmos. So the effort has been to choose uh, sites that are completely radio quiet. In Australia, one of the things that strikes you is uh, uh, this is native Australian land, in a sense, that they're looking at for building the square kilometer array. So you have, in both Australia and South Africa, you have a sense that you're standing on very ancient land. And it's, uh, it's quite amazing that these two pieces of a land where once one giant continent, if you go back 150 million years, they were part of Gondwana land, which was a supercontinent, and then Gondwana land split and became all the southern continents. And it's a very intense feeling to be standing on these ancient lands, knowing that one of these will host a telescope that is going to look back in time 10 billion years. Because when you're standing on this land, you're literally looking at rocks that are billions of years old. And then to have a telescope there that's going to look even further back in time, that is quite amazing. So what might we learn from this particular array that we can't learn from all these other instruments that we have? Well, the square kilometer array just completely changes the scale at which you do astronomy. I mean, to give you an example, the largest study of galaxies right now, it's something called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Uh, When it's completed, it will have studied about 1.5 million galaxies. The square kilometer array, when it's fully functional, will study a volume of space that is about a thousand times more than that and will literally study a thousand to two thousand times more galaxies. It will actually map out billions of galaxies. We've never studied galaxies in that kind of detail. So for the first time, we will be able to look at how galaxies formed from the first stars and galaxies all the way until now and see how structure in the universe has formed and changed over time. Uh, This has not been possible. And when you do that, you start understanding how things like dark matter and dark energy could have influenced the formation of these structures, galaxies, clusters, and clusters of clusters. And once you have that kind of information, you have a much better understanding of the properties of these mysterious things, dark matter and dark energy. And the hope is that by literally going back to the very beginning of when the first stars and galaxies formed and mapping the universe all the way from then until now, we will see the universe in ways that we've never seen before. Anil Nathaswamy, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Anil Anathaswamy is a journalist for New Scientist. Anil said that the radio waves a square kilometer array will pick up are long waves. He said there were a few centimeters to a few meters. That seems very short. Well, it's short compared to AM radio. Those wavelengths are, you know, hundreds of feet or something like that. But it is long compared to the wavelengths of light, which, I don't know, are a millionth of an inch or so. And also, they are longer compared to the wavelengths that radio astronomers have typically observed. ¶¶ 
coming up. We not only could see the effects or the aftermath of the explosion, the debris moving out into space, and right in the middle of the image, we could see a little dot of X-ray light. We could see the neutron star, which was formed at the time of the supernova explosion. Catch a wave on Big Picture Science. is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Okay, we're getting to the long of it, long wavelengths of light. The longest are called radio waves. And as you move upward along the electromagnetic spectrum, they get shorter until we get back to... I can see, I can see when I put my glasses on. The visible wavelengths again, but let's keep going. As waves get shorter than those our eyes detect, we arrive at those highly energetic forms of light called ultraviolet. Now, there are two kinds of ultraviolet, A and B. As in UVA and UVB. UVA are longer and they have some effect on us. I hear what you're saying, and there's not a lot I can do, but I can do something. Yes, I can. UVA from the sun can penetrate the skin and cause wrinkling and perhaps cancer. Then there are the shorter UVB waves. I hear what you're saying, and I don't like it. Let's just say I can make things very uh, uncomfortable for you. Yes, UVB waves can give you a sunburn and can also cause melanoma, so get out the sunblock. Although, you know, it's not really sunblock, it's ultraviolet block. As you go to shorter and shorter wavelengths, the light has more and more energy. If ultraviolet can burn your skin, why can't the light from this desk lamp here? It's, it's a form of radiation that's coming out. Yeah, but not enough energy. The waves are just too weak. Look, I mean, we like radiation. You don't burn your skin with it, but we use it to see, to kill bad bacteria, to sterilize equipment. But the most important thing is that without radiation, there'd be no life on Earth. Why has life adapted to visible light? Well, that's because that's what was available. I mean, if the sun were putting out X-rays, life probably would have adapted to that. We'd have some sort of, I don't know, X-ray photosynthesis. The sun does put out X-rays. It does, but it puts out a lot more radiation in what we call the visible part of the spectrum. That's where the maximum of the sun's output is. Now we're mingling with... High frequency, short wavelength, high energy, most penetrating... Waves in the electromagnetic spectrum. X-rays, they sound like funny kind of light that only superheroes would know about. Easy, miss. I've got you. You, You've got me? Who's got you? (laughs) But super scientists know about them, too. I'm Harvey Tannenbaum. I'm the director of the Chandra X-ray Center located in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. X-rays, X-rays. Well, we use them to see through soft tissue to bone. But Dr. Tannenbaum uses NASA's Chandra X-ray telescope to image the cosmos. I wonder what his favorite image is. Uh, It's like asking me which of my children I love the most. Uh, Chandra has just produced an array of astounding pictures. The images of uh, supernova remnants, stars that exploded uh, hundreds or a few thousands of years ago, are probably about the most spectacular of all. These images are exploding fireballs, glowing, ethereal. A lot of energy is released when a star explodes, and that means a lot of short light waves, such as X-rays, which are a thousand times more energetic than the light that's visible to our eyes. So there are are places in space, there are events that occur where the energy is involved, the temperatures that are produced, most of the energy that comes out actually comes out in the form of X-rays, and you can't see those systems, you can't see those events. You really can't tell what's going on unless you have an X-ray telescope to look at the very hot, the violent, the explosive parts of the universe. 
Okay. Well, tell me a little bit about how an X-ray telescope works. It's not sitting there on the ground outside of Boston. Right. So there are two key features to an X-ray telescope. First of all, we simply have to go up into space. We have to get up above the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere does a wonderful job in protecting us, for example, from X-rays from our own sun. So if we didn't have the Earth's atmosphere up above us, we would actually be subject to very damaging radiation from the sun. On the other hand, that atmosphere then prevents anything from outer space, from other stars and galaxies, from getting down to the surface of the Earth. So if we want to study X-rays, we have to go into space. So that's the first and foremost component. Second thing is, is if you took an ordinary mirror and you brought X-rays into that mirror, the X-rays would simply penetrate a little bit into the mirror. They might go right through it. They might create a little heat, but they wouldn't be reflected. To reflect and make an image or a picture in X-rays, you have to go to what's called grazing incidents. And just imagine somebody with a flat stone standing next to a pond and sort of side-arming the stone and skipping it across the surface of the pond. That's the way the X-rays skip off the cylindrical surfaces of our mirrors and actually by skipping twice get brought to a focus and produce a real sharp image of an X-ray source out in space. So it takes a very special kind of telescope, obviously, to image X-rays. And again, from my experience at the dentist, I know that X-rays will go through at least the soft tissue around my teeth. So it, it would go right through, a you know, just a very thin, ordinary mirror as you might find in a conventional telescope. So that, uh, I assume, accounts for the, the strange design of Chandra. What sort of detail can you see? Can you see as much detail as you could with you know, an ordinary telescope? Yes. Chandra has an ability to take pictures of very fine features of very distant objects. And one an analog to something here on the Earth is Chandra would be able to read the image of a stop sign at a distance of 12 miles and be able to read the letters STOP from 12 miles away. If you had an X-ray stop sign. Yes, if you had an X-ray stop sign and you didn't have all the atmosphere between you and that stop sign. <laughs> well, I mean, now Chandra has been up there for what, about a dozen years? Yes, Chandra launched in uh, July of 1999, and right now at 12 and a half years, it's still uh, running almost as good as the day it was built and launched. Well, perhaps you have a favorite uh, story, I mean, an aha moment that you got a picture back uh, from Chandra that uh, particularly impressed you. Yes. Chandra's been delivering surprises and discoveries since what we call the very first uh, official first light image. We gathered together in the control center here in Cambridge, Massachusetts to look at the object called Cassiopeia A, which is a supernova remnant, the aftermath of a star that exploded about 300 years ago. And we looked at the data accumulating on the screen in the first 30 minutes or so. We not only could see the effects or the aftermath of the explosion, the debris moving out into space, but right in the middle of the image, we could see a little dot of X-ray light. We could see the neutron star, which was formed at the time of the supernova explosion. People had thought that such a neutron star should have been created, but before Chandra, nobody had the resolving power to separate that little dot in the middle from all the debris and all the other X-ray emission that was, was in the neighborhood. So on the first light image, we had a discovery that first night. It sounds like a, uh, an occasion for uh, having a toast or something. I mean, when the first night of a new instrument, you already make a discovery. <laughs> Yeah, it was just fantastic. I think we were we were a little bit numb and we were really a lot excited. I can't really remember if there was time to go across the street and have a beer afterwards. I think that was the level, probably a beer rather than a champagne toast. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Now, if you had to describe to me, Harvey, what the major discoveries of the Chandra telescope have been, what what would you tell me? Well, I, I think that I would give you two levels of a response. I would tell you, first of all, that Chandra is having an impact on all aspects of astronomy, from objects in our own solar system out to the most distant known quasars when the universe was just a few hundreds of millions or billions of years old. That said, I think that Chandra is giving us all sorts of detailed insights into these exploding stars, these supernova explosions. It's telling us what happens close to a black hole. It's telling us what happens in these clusters of galaxies, which are just a, a fantastic test bed for studying uh, how things go on in the universe. So mapping the x-rays in a big cluster of galaxies, which might have thousands of galaxies. I mean, that, that's a way of looking at the history of what's happened there. You're not just looking at things as they are today, but it can tell you something about what's happened in the past. 
Right. Uh, in the middle of the cluster, there's usually a big galaxy, and in the middle of that big galaxy, there's usually a big black hole. And we sometimes look in the radio part of the spectrum, and we'll see what we call jets, very finely confined streams of, of energetic particles that are flying away from the black hole close to the speed of light and producing radio signals at that time. Uh, when we uh, look in the x-rays where the radio is seen, all the x-ray emitting gas has been pushed aside. And there's these cavities, these bubbles, these voids. We actually see absence of x-rays because there's so much energy carried away from the black hole in these jets that it pushes away the x-ray emitting gas. And it actually sets up what we call a, a feedback cycle, sort of a life cycle. The whole process starts when matter falls towards the black hole, and the gravity of the black hole accelerates it to a very high speed, picks up so much energy it gets very hot, and the matter starts radiating x-rays. It also produces these jets through some kind of an instability that we don't really fully understand. The jets go flying away, and they push away the matter that's falling in, and they turn everything off. When everything gets turned off, more matter can start falling back in, and you start to get the jets forming again. When we look with Chandra in the x-rays, we see these bubbles where the gas has been pushed away. And if we look on even larger scales, we see rings, almost like a fossil record of tree growth when you see the growth of, of the rings in the tree. In these x-ray observations with Chandra of these clusters, we see rings of brighter and fainter emission, which are the after effect of these explosions. We find that explosions might occur. These jets come flying out uh, every 10 million years. They last a million years or so, and then nothing happens. And about 10 million years later, there's another explosion. And we actually see these series of rings from these different explosions. And we can measure how much energy is liberated. We can measure how often it occurs. We really can trace the history over hundreds of millions of years of what's going on in the black hole. The cluster gas is basically leaving us a record. Everything is imprinted on the gas and the records left for us to see. It's a, it's a fossil record. And in another way, it's sort of like, a, I don't know, Old Faithful at Yellowstone because it periodically gets energetic and then relieves itself of the uh, pressure and, uh, you know, takes exactly. a break. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Harvey, when many people think of x-rays, they might think of Superman because he was a superhero who had x-ray vision, whatever that was, and he used it to see bad guys through brick walls or even the color of Lois Lane's underwear, which assumes that x-rays... <laughs> you can edit that out. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I'm just telling you what, what, what happened. But that assumes that x-rays are, you know, uh, in color and uh, that you could have x-ray eyeballs. Any of that makes sense? No, it really doesn't. X-rays do have an energy. And so uh, when we look at our x-ray images, we'll use colors to often show uh, higher energy x-rays in blue and lower energy x-rays in red and stuff in the middle in green and yellow. So colors are a very useful way of representing the energy, but they really are at a part of the spectrum where energy makes sense, but colors are actually a very specific part of the electromagnetic spectrum, which is what our eye can see in the visible light or the optical. Well, finally, Harvey, you know, the universe is, in fact, a violent place. Despite what we see on science fiction on Star Trek, you know, <laughs> the universe just consists of a bunch of rather benign-looking stars, and there are a bunch of Klingons out there and other forms of life, but it all looks fairly peaceful. But, in fact, there are parts of the universe that are extremely violent, and these violent places are the, the, the places you study, I suppose. You're, you're really studying the violent universe with x-rays. Yeah, absolutely. When we uh, would talk about Chandra, even before it launched, we talked about exploding stars, colliding galaxies, black holes, dark matter. Uh, in the images that we see with Chandra, sometimes they look relatively smooth and peaceful, but they're still, to produce the x-rays, you're often looking at things where there are collisions, where things moving hundreds of millions of miles an hour are actually slamming through each other. And because you're just looking at a quick snapshot of it, uh, the image itself may look uh, like, you know, it's rather calm. But to produce the shock waves, the temperatures, the energies involved, we're talking about uh, collisions and explosions in almost every instance. Harvey Tannenbaum, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. X-rays mark the spot in the sky that Harvey Tannenbaum wants to image as director of the Chandra X-ray Center at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Well then, uh, is it true that uh, you can see through anything? Uh, yes, I can. What color underwear am I wearing? Hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I embarrassed you, didn't I? Oh, no. I no, 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 not at all, Miss Lane. It's just that this platter must be made of lead. Pink. Huh? Pink. 
Um, sorry, Miss Lane. I didn't mean to embarrass you. Next, the most energetic waves that we know and the mysterious outliers that may reveal the biggest secrets in the cosmos. It's Catch a Wave on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Just when you thought you couldn't get any more energetic. Gamma rays. These are small and powerful, sort of like bantamweight boxers. Hey, so why not sterilize equipment with gamma rays instead of ultraviolet? The one problem you'd have is that the gamma rays would go right through your lab equipment. They'd make it somewhat radioactive. Why is that? Well, they're such high energy. They would actually start breaking down the nuclei in the atoms of the equipment, uh, making them radiate other particles. So, you know, if you walked into a room of lab equipment that had been hit by gamma rays, it would be like walking to a room full of flying bullets. Those bullets would strike the atoms in your body and damage your DNA, is that how that works? Yep, so of all the radiation in the electromagnetic spectrum, higher frequency, more dangerous, gamma rays are the most dangerous. This man studies not gamma ray bursters, which you may have heard of, but gamma ray blazars. Okay, I'm Alan Marsher, I'm a professor of astronomy at Boston University. Gamma ray bursters are the most powerful events we know in the cosmos since the Big Bang, and they're probably collapsing stars. They last just for seconds. But Alan studies gamma ray blazars, which last for millions of years. Oh, and not everybody calls him Alan. Cosmos II. That's my stage name. Why he chose Cosmos II? Well, because we are all part of the cosmos. The hydrogen in our bodies came from the Big Bang. The carbon atoms in our body and the iron atoms in our body came from stars that exploded. So we are literally made out of the material from stars. Why Alan Marsher even has a stage name, we'll find out later. First, our intrepid reporter, Marissa Fessenden, got him to open up about his study into gamma-ray blazars. Well, a blazar is a galaxy where in the nucleus there's a supermassive black hole, meaning a black hole that has about a billion times the mass of the sun. And as matter falls in, it creates jets of particles and magnetic field shooting out from the nucleus. And if that jet is pointing almost at us, that's what a blazar is. This intense radiation coming from the gamma ray blazar, where exactly is it coming from? Is it coming out of the black hole itself? No, because of the nature of the black hole, nothing can come out, not even light. So what's happening is as the matter falls into the black hole, most of it gets swallowed. But also along with the matter comes a lot of magnetic field. And the black hole's rotation and the orbits around the black hole twist up the magnetic field. And the twisting magnetic field is kind of like twisting up a wire and making a, a spring out of a really tightly wound wire. And it propels particles out along the, uh, the rotational poles of the black hole system. So, in fact, when we look at a blazar, we just happen to be in the right position to look down into the pole of a, of a big black hole in the center of a galaxy, and it's producing a lot of energy. So black holes produce a lot of energy. They do, yes, they can, because they're eating stuff, and when they eat stuff, they heat it up. It gets tied in with the magnetic fields and shoots out the poles of the black hole. Gamma rays are part of the electromagnetic spectrum. They're at the extreme end of the spectrum. What, what are they like if... 
say one passed through me right now, would I be able to feel it? You probably wouldn't feel a, a single one, but if you were exposed to a lot of gamma rays, there would be enough damage to your tissues in your body that would cause radiation poisoning. They have so much energy that they interact and destroy organic molecules that are inside somebody's body. So these blazars, they're shooting out gamma rays, but they're also shooting out other kinds of radiation. Blazars are able to make radiation all across the entire electromagnetic spectrum, from microwaves to infrared to visible light to x-rays and also gamma rays. Gamma rays aren't visible, so how do you study them? Well, it's true. Our eyes are not sensitive to gamma rays, but there are sensors that are, and they've been incorporated into something called the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope. We use the fact that the gamma rays will interact so strongly with matter. And so when a gamma ray comes into a detector, and we have to send the detector up into space in a satellite because the gamma rays don't penetrate the Earth's atmosphere. When the gamma ray hits the detector in the satellite, it causes a change. And in fact, it makes a little matter-antimatter pair, an electron-positron pair. And by following the electron-positron pair, which have electric charges, and so our detectors are sensitive to them, we can figure out that there must have been a gamma ray that came in. So gamma rays create this electron-positron pair. What does that mean? Why does that make the gamma rays more visible? Well, it's just the fact that these things are so energetic that they produce another sort of particle that we can more easily measure. So it's sort of like detecting, I don't know, machine gun fire by looking for the bullet holes in the wall. So gamma ray blazars are some of the most powerful events in the universe. They are, but giant black holes are involved, and that usually means high energy. When he's studying gamma-ray blazars, Alan Marsher goes by, astronomer Alan Marsher. But when he's on stage singing songs he's written about the diversity of light in the universe, please. Then it's Cosmos the Second. And you have a song you've written called Stars by the Colors. In it, you sing about brown dwarfs. What are brown dwarfs and what do they look like? Well, brown dwarfs are almost stars. They uh, don't have very high mass. Their masses are less than about a tenth of the mass of the sun. So gravity doesn't squeeze them down enough so that they have nuclear reactions in their cores like most stars do, which is uh, the nuclear reactions that make the stars shine. Objects less than a thousand degrees emit little visible light, but with infrared eyes we'd see them illuminate the night. So they're, they're kind of like failed stars, but still the energy that they get from the gravity compressing the gas is enough to make them glow in infrared light. Similar to we, we glow also in infrared light. Newborn stars, shrouded by dust, shine only in infrared. So do brown dwarfs with mass so low, their cores energetically dead. Next, you sing about red dwarfs. How are red dwarfs different from brown dwarfs? Red dwarfs have a little bit more mass. They have masses of a few tenths of the mass of the sun. Red dwarf stars, a common sort, have low luminosity, living for hundreds of billions of years in cool anonymity. The colors of the stars all depend on how massive the stars are and what stage they are in their lifetimes. The stars that have low mass don't have such high temperatures on their surface, so they glow in infrared and red light. In your chorus, you actually sing about all those different colors. A star's life and its fate are revealed by its light. Blue means hot, heavy, and short-lived, most intrinsically bright. White, yellow, orange, and red, from spectacular to dull. Each less hot, less luminous, longer to live. Color reveals it all. Yes, color reveals it all. Thank you so much, Alan. Let us know when your next album drops. (laughs) We'll do that. Cosmos II is a songwriter and singer. Alan Marsher is an astronomer at Boston University. Color reveals it all. Yes, color. And that brings us to the end of the electromagnetic spectrum from the high frequency, high energy, short waves of gamma radiation to the low frequency, low energy, long waves of radio. Nearly everything we know about the universe is thanks to electromagnetic waves from the composition of stars to the history of the Big Bang. 
nearly everything. Einstein predicted the existence of something that could change that, gravity waves, distortions of space-time itself. Gravity waves should, in theory, be able to penetrate where electromagnetic waves can't. So that means the waves of the electromagnetic spectrum are not the only ones that could tell us about our universe. Gravity waves might tell us a lot if we could detect them. And that's the hope of the team who run the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO. Two members are at the California Institute of Technology, Deputy Director of LIGO, Albert Lazzarini, and David Wright's Executive Director. David, everybody knows something about gravity. We experience it every day. But what are gravity waves? Aha. So when you drop an apple, for example, let's pretend we're Isaac Newton and we're sitting under an apple tree and the apple falls on us and hits Sir Isaac Newton in the head. The reason it falls is because there's a force. That force is the force of attraction between the two bodies. Well, what Einstein tells us is that that force is actually due to the fact that the apple is falling and moving along some part of space-time. But as it's falling, it's actually doing something more interesting. It's actually radiating waves. And these waves are unlike other kinds of waves, like sound waves or, or light waves, the kinds of waves that a lot of physicists talk about. They're literally waves in space-time itself. An analogy that I could give you is if you think about the surface of a pond that's very smooth. And that surface represents space, right? If I drop a rock or a pebble into that, what happens, of course, is as the pebble hits the water, it creates ripples in those waves. Well, those ripples, analogously in space-time, would be ripples in space-time. So a gravitational wave is literally a change in, in the distance between two objects in space. That's what, that's what gravitational waves are. So, Albert, if a gravity wave were to wash over the Earth right now, and presumably some of them are, would my weight, for example, actually go up and down? Would it change because of this wave? Your dimensions would change, but the effect is incredibly small. To give an example, if a neutron star were to collapse into a black hole at a distance of 45 or 50 million light years from Earth, the effect on the surface of the Earth would be to distort your physical dimensions temporarily as the wave went by by something the order of one one-thousandth the diameter of a proton. Wow. I don't, I, I don't think the women would notice that I got slightly larger or smaller. No, unfortunately not. But what about the direct observation of gravity waves? I mean, that's the experiment you guys are working on now, right, David? Correct. So go back to this uh, statement that a gravitational wave passing over an Earth would change the distance uh, between two points to less than the thousandths of a diameter of a, a nucleus of an atom or a proton. All right, so the challenge is to try and measure that, and that's what LIGO, LIGO is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, that's what LIGO is all about. It uses a lot of cool, sophisticated technology to be able to precisely measure to that level, and we've demonstrated it, actually. LIGO's been operational since the early 2000, 2002 was the first science run, and we've been able to make those measurements. Unfortunately, because of the rate at which nature produces these gravitational waves, we haven't been able to see one yet. We're actually undergoing an upgrade to something called Advanced LIGO, where we expect to see many, many of these events per year. Okay, so you guys are not, uh, you haven't bought your tickets to uh, Stockholm yet. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet, no. It's a challenging experiment, and one has to first think about the fact that we inhabit the Earth. And the Earth is far from a quiet place. I mean, the most catastrophic events, of course, that we're uh, we're all painfully aware of are massive earthquakes, automobile traffic, mining activities, airplanes. So there's a lot of disturbances caused by man and just being on on the Earth uh, that have to be reduced by over a factor of a billion before we can get down to the sensitivities that David and I mentioned earlier. You have kind of told me in a backhanded way that gravity waves travel at the speed of light. Is, is, is that something we know, or is that something we assume to be true? That is something that we assume to be true based on Einstein's theory of general relativity. In fact, there are alternative theories of gravity that predict that they might not move at the speed of light. Well, I've got to tell you that I get emails every week from people who say, if you're looking for aliens, forget about looking for radio waves because they go too slowly. <laughs> you should look for gravity waves because they go infinitely fast. But what I'm hearing from you is... 
Maybe that's not true. Send send back a politely worded reply saying, not according to Einstein. (laughs) I've tried that, but but (laughs) it doesn't always work. Well, listen, gentlemen, this is an incredibly interesting experiment. It's a big experiment. It's big science. But on the other hand, big science usually means you're addressing big questions. So what can we learn about the universe by studying it, not with electromagnetic radiation, light, or radio waves, or X-rays, but looking at it with gravity waves? So this is a great question. The reason was to, in recognition of the fact that if you detect gravitational waves, you're not only proving something about Einstein's theory of relativity, but you're actually doing a new kind of astronomy. And this is really, really important because it turns out that a lot of the big cataclysmic astronomical events and astrophysical events that take place, for example, a supernova, actually are probably producing gravitational waves too. The Big Bang, of course, happened, that was the instant of the birth of the universe. And our knowledge of the Big Bang comes from the cosmic microwave background. The problem with those experiments is that they don't look back to the beginning of time, to the beginning of the universe. They look back to about 400,000 years after it. And so if you could measure a gravitational wave from the Big bang itself, you'd be looking at the universe pretty darn near the moment of its birth. I should emphasize that LIGO is very unlikely to see that based on current knowledge of us cosmology. But nevertheless, nature always surprises us, and future gravitational wave detectors might be able to see it. Uh, novel and important discoveries created every time a new eyeball or a new window on the universe was introduced, and we feel very much that we're following in that tradition of astronomy here. You guys are not yet recognized on the streets of Los Angeles, but that would change if you found gravity waves. So when's that going to happen? I would say that 2017 isn't out of the question, and I would be really surprised and disappointed if we hadn't detected something by 2018. That would be an appropriate birthday present for uh, Albert Einstein, wherever he may be. I hope he celebrates it adequately. Well, Albert Lazzarini, thank you so much for talking with me. Quite welcome. And David Wrights, thank you for being with us today. You're very welcome, Seth. Albert Lazzarini is the Deputy Director, and David Wrights is the Executive Director of the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO, at the California Institute of Technology. Well, Seth, we've learned about a lot of different waves in the show. Yeah, that, that's definitely a lot of wave pleasure. But, of course, the electromagnetic spectrum is very rich, both in what it can tell us and what it does for us. Most communications operate because of our mastery of electromagnetic radiation. And if we do detect gravity waves? Uh, I think it's going to be very interesting. You can look back almost right to the beginning of the Big Bang. Thanks to our production staff, Light on Their Feet, with magnetic personalities Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Marissa Fessenden. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Catch a Wave. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio simply because you're a socially conscious individual, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.